0: I want to introduce to you Dr. Michael Taylor. I did
1: not know until talking to Wayne this week that you're a warrior brother. Yes, sir. Yeah, I am glad. I'm glad you're here. Uh, Dr. Michael Taylor has written 12 books. He is a life coach. Uh, he is a dynamic speaker. And uh, he has a topic for today that I think is going to be challenging and wonderful, and that is how to be optimistic about race relations. Please help me welcome Dr. Michael Taylor. Thank you, glad you're here. I'm not sure where
2: the doctor title comes from, but I'm not a doctor, I'm a life coach. So, all right, so good morning. So I'd like to begin by taking the racial temperature of the room. So I'd like you to think about the current state of race relations, and I wanna know if you're optimistic are pessimistic about the future of race relations. So if you're pessimistic about race relations, raise your hand, please. Okay? If you're optimistic about race relations, raise your hand. Interesting. So although I'm extremely optimistic about race relations, I know the truth. I know the reality that's out there. But what I'm going to share is the fact that who's right when you say I'm optimistic or pessimistic about the future? Who's right? Vote. Why is that? Because our perception creates our reality. And if you have a perception that race relations are going, guess what's going to show up in your experience? But if you have a perception that life or race is in the optimistic lens, guess what you'll see? So I am considered an irrepressible optimist with a passion for the impossible. And as a man who happens to be black, I get a lot of pushback for having that point of view. Because it appears that I'm in denial of all the challenges that our country faces. But I am well aware of all the challenges. I simply choose to focus on that which is right. And that's my focus. So who is Coach Michael Taylor? Well, I'm an entrepreneur, author of 12 books, motivational speaker, podcaster. But does that really tell you who Michael Taylor is? Not really. That's just kind of what I do. So I wanted to kind of share my story. So I was born in an inner city project of Corpus Christi, Texas to a single mom with six kids. And we were basically the poster children for poverty back in the 60s. And when I was in the 11th grade, I went to a seminar. And this guy convinced me that I could get rich selling vacuum (laughs) cleaners. So in the 11th grade, I dropped out of high school, which is a really poor choice. But fortunately for me, I secured a job with this building supply center. And I climbed the corporate ladder pretty quickly and actually became the youngest manager in the history of this particular company at the age of 22. And by the age of 23, I was living the American dream. I had the house, the wife, the 2.5 kids, the vacations, and all of that. And by society standards, I was successful. And within approximately a six and a half year time frame, that American dream turned into the American nightmare as I went through a divorce. Bankruptcy, foreclosure, a deep, deep state of depression. I was actually homeless for two years, living out of a car. And during the darkest period of my life, I received a miracle. I was sitting up late one night because I was too depressed to sleep. And I was sitting at the edge of my bed, looking across the room at my bookshelf, when I happened to notice that every book on my bookshelf has something to do with getting rich or making money. And as I looked at those books, this question just popped in my head, Michael, what if you took all the energy and effort you've used in trying to get rich and simply figure out how to be happy? And as simplistic as that question may sound, it literally changed and saved my life in an instant. I can't explain it, but all of a sudden my depression lifted and I had this amazing clarity that I was going to be able to rebuild my life, and it was going to become extraordinary. And so as a result of asking that question, I stopped reading books on getting rich and making money. I started reading books on psychology and philosophy and spirituality and metaphysics, and I went on what I'll call my journey of transformation. And as a result of going on that journey, I was able to rebuild my life, and it has become extraordinary. And so I made it my life's work to share the lessons that I've learned along my journey with others, to support and empower them on their own journey. And so who I am really, I'm just an ordinary guy who made a commitment to live an extraordinary life. And I'm absolutely certain, if you're watching this presentation right now, you have the capacity to make your life extraordinary. And so what makes my, my life extraordinary is the fact that I get to do what I love to do, which is speak and write. But even more so than that, what makes my life extraordinary are these people. This is my family. That's my son, Mike Jr. on the left, he's 39. There's my daughter, Katrina, she's 36. There's my son, Charles, he's 24. There's my grandson, Charles, he's eight. My granddaughter, Sony, she's three. And my lovely wife, who I've been married to for the past 22 years, who's sitting back in the corner back there. 24 years, what'd she say? (laughs) She's got an opinion. What did I say? Did I say 24? 42. (laughs) So anyway, this is what makes my life extraordinary. Knowing that these people love and adore me for who I am. So it is my belief that it's time for a new conversation about race. We all know how difficult it is to engage in these types of conversations because we all have perceptions and opinions and beliefs about race. And so I love what Buck Mr. Fuller said when he said, you never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. And I believe that new model is a conversation in which we acknowledge that I may have a different perception than you, but it is not my job to make you wrong for your perception. And if you look at all of the divisiveness in our world, I would say the foundation of most of it is that as human beings, we have this insatiable need to be right. And we simply are unwilling to change our beliefs and positions about certain things. So I'm suggesting or requesting that you just be a little open-minded. And remember, what I'm going to be sharing, these are Michael Taylor's perceptions of race. And you get to decide if it aligns with your perception. Really simple. So I want to share a few experiences in my own life. Um, as a man who happens to be black in America. So when I was in elementary school, I had this amazing teacher named Miss Bussey. And Miss Bussey had this board at the front of the room. And on the board, she had all the students' names. And when you received an A, you got a gold star. If you received a B, you get a blue star, I believe. And if you received a C, you get a green star. So by looking at that board, you had an idea of who might be the smartest person in the class. (laughs) Well, guess who was the smartest person in the class? Yes. The closest person was a friend of mine named Susan. Susan and I were really good friends. And one day I was teasing Susan about having more gold stars than she did. Well, Susan goes home and tells her parents. She comes back the next day. And my friend Susan comes up to me and says, you can't be smarter than me because my mom says white people are smarter than N-words. Think about this. I'm in elementary school. Now, I don't think she had any malice behind what she was saying. Matter of fact, I, she probably didn't even know what the word meant. But her parents instilled in her a belief that white people were smarter than black people. Okay? So, when I get to high school, I meet and fall in love with my high school sweetheart. We had that high school infatuated kind of love, you know? And when we first met, she loved hanging out at the beach smoking weed and skipping school. <laughs> that was her thing. When we started dating, I said, "No, we need to change that." So, I convinced her. Give up the weed, stop skipping school. She went from a C and D student to an A and B student. Things were great for about a year. There was one small problem. She happened to be white. After about a year, I get a phone call. It's her dad. Found out about us. He's not happy. He's spewing all this stuff I do not need to repeat. And I made the mistake of saying, Sir, I think you should be happy based on how your daughter's doing. Since we've been together, have you not noticed? And he got really angry. And he said this. There is no way I will allow my daughter today to date an N word. I will kill you before I allow that to happen. Now, my first feeling was sadness because I couldn't understand how someone could hate me and not even know me and not acknowledge what I had done for his daughter. And so I knew not to get into an argument with him. So I just kind of let him spew his anger. But I will never forget the feeling that came through that phone. And I knew it was not about me. This man hated black people, period. He hated black people. And it came through his voice. Well, the good news is we dated anyway. (laughs) And uh, eventually went our, our separate ways. And the last story I want to share is I mentioned that I became manager for this building supply center. You may have heard of McCoy's Building Supply here in Texas. I became manager of the store in Pearland, Texas. And so as a manager, you know, I'm the big guy. And there was a customer arguing with one of my cashiers. So the cashier calls me up. It turns out the guy was trying to return something that was against company policy. And so I walk up to the register to see what's going on and say, sir, I'm sorry, you can't return this item. And the guy loses it. First thing he says is, boy. Boy, you can't tell me what to do. I said, sir, <laughs> company policy says. He says, sir, look, I don't want to talk to you. Because here in Perryland, we don't let N-words tell us what to do. You get me somebody else who's over you. I said, sir, I'm sorry. I'm the manager. There's no one above me. He said, that's not good enough. You get, you get me somebody on the phone that I can talk to. He was really pissed. I said, sir, OK, give me just a second now. We had a policy with McCoy's because I was actually the, the second black manager in this country's, uh, this company's 67-year history. So he said, the owner said, look, if you ever have a problem, call me. So guess what? I called the owner of the company. I said, Mr. McCoy, we have a small problem. I need you to talk to this customer. So I hand him the phone, and the guy goes off. I can't believe you've got this n-word running your store down here in Pearland. Who do you, what are you doing? And all of a sudden, he kind of gets pale. <laughs> and he hands me the phone back. I said, yes. And Mr. McCoy says, call the police. Get him out of the store. And he is no longer allowed to shop at my store. As fate would have it, a police officer <laughs> was walking in the store. <laughs> and I tell the police what's off, what's happening. And the police tells the guy to leave. And the guy just goes off on the cops, screaming and hollering about N-words running stores in Pearland. And, the customers were in shock, apologizing, Michael, I'm sorry, blah, 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 blah. But again, I've been dealing with that all of my life. So despite all the challenges I've had as a black man in America, I still remain optimistic about the future of race relations. And why is that? You want to know why? This guy. How many of you know Wayne Dyer? Wayne Dyer is my all-time favorite mentor. And when I was in my 20s, I read a book by Wayne Dyer, and he said this. As a human being, you have the capacity to do anything any other human being has ever done. And if it hasn't been done, you can be the first. And when I read that, it was as if my soul heard it. And I got it. And from that moment on, I didn't see myself as just a man who happened to be black. I saw myself as a divine human being with infinite potential. And I could do anything I set my mind to. And my mom had also taught me another valuable lesson when I was very young. And she said this, Michael, if you want something badly enough, there is no one or no thing that can keep you from attaining it except yourself. Powerful lesson. And that is the reason why I've been able to accomplish what I've accomplished with only an 11th grade education, because I've always believed that if I wanted something badly enough, no one could keep me from attaining it except myself. So we're talking about race. Everybody take a deep breath. So. What is racism? So here's a definition that I came up or I saw somewhere. It says, the belief that race accounts for differences in human character or ability and that a particular race is superior to others. That's one definition. But my question is, so where does it come from? So how many of you know Ken Wilber? Raise your hand. I love Ken Wilber. He's the founder or the creator of what's called integral theory and it's been called The Theory of Everything, and it's pretty freaking amazing if you haven't read some of his stuff. But Ken says that all human beings have four worldviews. Now, I've kind of modified them just a little bit for this presentation, but the first worldview is what he calls an ethnocentric worldview, meaning I am different and separate from others because of ethnicity. It's just a worldview. Okay? The next worldview is what he calls a human-centric worldview, which means I am not separate from others based on ethnicity, and human beings are all one, but separate from the world. And then he says, as what's called a world centric worldview, meaning I am not separate from others based on ethnicity, and human beings are all one and connected to the world. And last but not least, it's called a cosmocentric worldview, meaning I am, all human beings are all connected and connected to everything in the universe. Okay? So, what is a racist? A racist is someone who is trapped in an ethnocentric worldview and has a belief that their race is superior, is the superior race. Why do you think we had the KKK? Their belief was that their race was the superior race. So, where do racist beliefs come from? People aren't born racist. So where do the beliefs come from? Well, I love this quote. It says, our belief system doesn't just shape our perception of reality. It becomes our reality. So where do perceptions come from? Well, first of all, it starts with our family. So if you happen to be white and you've never been exposed to black folk, where did your beliefs and views about them come from? In most cases, your family. right. Next, our culture. Our culture is basically the people you hang around the most. (laughs) What's your political affiliation? What's your religious affiliation? What your friends are? That's kind of your culture. That's where you get your beliefs from. And last but not least, society slash media. The media shapes our beliefs. And once again, if you have not been exposed to black people and you are paying attention to mainstream media, I'm going to assert that most of the stuff you get from mainstream media about black people is negative. Because we have a media that loves negativity, pessimism, cynicism, and sensationalism. But guess what? If we don't have the awareness to challenge our beliefs, We buy into what we see in mainstream media. I like to think of myself as a solution-oriented guy. (laughs) So the fact that we're having this conversation is I'm hoping to create some solutions. Remember what I said about a new conversation about race? So the question is, so how do we change race's beliefs? I love what the Buddha said. He says, we are what we think. All that we are rises with our thoughts. With our thoughts, we make our world. Once again, my favorite guy says, if you change the way you look at things, the things you look at will change. So what does that mean? We have to be willing to change what we believe. So In order to change beliefs. We must be willing to become aware of the unconscious beliefs, which are really just stereotypes that we have about people that may not look like us. Now, Bill talked last week about the shadow and how the unconscious shadow, the things that we may not even be conscious, that's really driving our behaviors, but they're there in the subconscious. And so we must be willing to look at some deeply held beliefs and stereotypes that we may not even know or recognize it's impacting how we see people. So remember this, your beliefs generate your thoughts, your thoughts generate your feelings, your feelings generate your actions, and your actions create your outcomes. So if you want to change any aspect of your life, it begins with you challenging your beliefs. Your beliefs create your reality. So when it comes to black men in America, as mentioned, there are lots of negative stereotypes about us that you may have accepted but may not even be aware that you believe them. So I want to ask a question, but first of all, how many of you have daughters? Raise your hand if you have a daughter. Okay. So I have a question. How would you feel if your daughter dated a black guy? Now, for some of you, the feeling could be anger. For some of you, the feeling could be fear. For some of you, it could be sadness. For others, it could be shame. What will my family think? What will people say? The question is, what triggered that feeling? Whatever that feeling was, what caused you to feel that way? I'm going to say it was your beliefs. You have a subconscious belief about black men. And as soon as I asked that question, you went to your subconscious mind. The belief triggered a thought. Oh, no, I don't want to date a black guy. Oh, no. what? But that is the basis of all stereotypes. They're just subconscious beliefs that we're holding on to, and a lot of times we're completely unconscious of them. So we must be willing to challenge some of those beliefs. We must be willing to go down into that place called subconscious and pull up the stuff that maybe needs to be changed. So when it comes to black men, as mentioned, there are a lot of negative stereotypes that you may have accepted that I wanna bring some light to. So I wrote a book called Shattering Black Male Stereotypes, Eradicating the Ten Most Destructive Media-Generated Illusions About Black Men. And I came up with what I call the ten most destructive ones. I'm going to share a few of them here. But once again, these are just stereotypes. So what I'd like to do is challenge you to ask yourself honestly, as I share them, to see if you've believed them, if you've bought into them, First stereotype, black men are angry and violent. So how many of you saw the story of the young black man that went and rung somebody's doorbell and the guy shot him? Why did he do that? He was afraid. afraid. But why was he afraid? He had a subconscious belief that black men are angry and violent, so I must protect myself. And so what has happened is because of all the negative news stories that we hear about black men, there is a stereotype, a belief that all black men are angry and violent. There are even some experts that will tell you that black people have a greater propensity towards violence, which there's no scientific evidence to back that. The fact is, people have subconscious beliefs based primarily on what they see in the news and in the media. They don't even realize that those beliefs are challenging them to see how they think, which creates them to act a certain way. So my question to you today is, have you accepted that stereotype? Do you believe, let's just say most black men are angry and violent. Guess what? We aren't. We are just as loving, compassionate, empathetic as any other group of people. But you wouldn't know that if you pay attention to mainstream, especially news. So that's stereotype number one. Number two, black men are deadbeat dads. Now, raise your hand if you've heard this. Be honest. Yeah. Black men are deadbeat dads. Once again, there's a lot of statistics out there about how many fathers aren't in the home. And and you've got statistics that you can say whatever you want to say. But the fact is, there was a CDC study that was done a few years ago. Objective study, Center for Disease Control. How many of you saw the study that showed that black men were actually more involved in their children's lives than men of other races? Anybody see that report? I wonder why not. Hmm. There's a guy in Australia named Stephen Biddulph. He is supposedly the foremost expert on fatherhood. And Stephen came up with what he calls the 30-30-30-10 rule. And it goes like this. You put 100 men in a room, regardless of race, religion, socioeconomic status, you put 100 men in a room, here's what you'll get. 30 of those men would have no relationship with their fathers whatsoever. Either through the father just leaving, dying, whatever. He, they would have no relationship with their dad. Okay, Of the hundred men, 30 of them would have what he calls an estranged relationship with their father. Meaning the father's in their life, but there's really no real connection there. He's just there. Of those 100 men, 30 of them would has, have what he calls a holiday relationship with their father, meaning the father only shows emotions on holidays. <laughs> and of those 100 men, only 10 of them would have what he calls an emotionally, spiritually, psychologically healthy relationship with their dads. So this isn't about race. It's about masculinity. It's about men learning how to be good fathers. Now, we have to understand that being a great father isn't genetic. It's learned behavior. Any man can learn to become a great father. Therefore, this stereotype, I hope you're not holding on to it. And my request is that you let it go because we love our children just like everybody else. Another stereotype, black men are lazy. Raise your hand. I know you've heard it. Come on. Be honest. Yeah, you've heard it. It's a stereotype. Are there some lazy black men? Of course there are. But there's lazy men of all races. (laughs) But as black men, we get this label that we're lazy. Okay? It's a stereotype. Ooh. Black men are unpatriotic. Hmm. Here's the deal we don't protest because we don't love this country, we protest because we do. and we protest because we want this country to live up to its ideals. And what it says it was committed to. All men are created equal. So rather than label us unpatriotic, know where the pain comes from. Know how much it hurts us to see what's happening in this country don't believe that we don't love this country. I can only speak for myself. I love America. I love everything about it. And I would do everything in my power to keep this country great. So don't believe this stereotype that black men are unpatriotic. And last but not least, black men use race as an excuse for failure. So how many of you, have seen a story of a black man talking about racism and you go, oh, there they go again. Why does everything have to be about race? Well, a lot of times it is. A lot of times it is. So I'd like you to challenge that stereotype. And the next time you see someone saying something about race and racism, don't just dismiss it. Just be open to seeing a different point of view. So the key to removing racism is to be willing to change our beliefs about people who may not look like us. In other words, we must challenge the unconscious stereotypes we have about others and be willing to embrace a human-centric worldview. Sounds simple, but not. So remember, beliefs create thoughts. Thoughts create feelings. Feelings create actions. And actions create outcomes. So I'd like to give you a very simple exercise that you can do when you get home today. It's going to take a little rigorous honesty with yourself, but it's really pretty simple. When you go home today, get a piece of paper. And at the top of that page, I just want you to write. Black people are. And for 30 seconds, just write whatever comes to mind. Don't think too much about it, because your intellect will try to rationalize it and say, oh, I don't want to say that. But just be honest with yourself. Black people are. And just for 30 seconds, just whatever comes to mind. And what you're doing is you're giving yourself an opportunity to change the stereotype. Because as you're writing it down, now you can have the awareness to change it. The question is, are you willing to? That's the only way we'll change stereotypes, is to become aware that they exist. Very simple exercise. So everybody take a deep breath. <sighs> yeah, I don't want this to be too heavy. So now we get to the fun part—the three reasons. Now, once again, I said that these are Michael Taylor's perceptions, right? So this is—these are Michael Taylor's perceptions of the three reasons I'm optimistic about the future of race relations. Oh, by the way, how are we doing on time? (laughs) We're good. Oh yeah, we're good. We're good. My perception is the Great American Experiment worked. ever really stopped to think about the fact that this country is only 250 years old? Ballpark. And in my 62-year lifespan, the progress that we've made as a country fills me with optimism. Because if we stay on the same trajectory that we've been on, I believe we're moving in the right direction. Now again, my perception. Again, I was born in the 60s. And I remember we had a little black and white TV. And whenever you saw a black person on television, it was a big event. People were calling each other on the phone. Man, I tell you, oh, did you see Sydney party on TV? Yeah, yeah. So having black people on television used to be a big event, right? What about today? Not only are we on television, but guess what? We own television stations. And the challenges that we've overcome fill me with optimism, because I believe in the resilience of the group called Black people and what we've overcome. So there's a lot of people asking the question, do we live in a racist country? There's a big one. Would you like to hear my perception of that? So my first question is, what constitutes a racist country? Well, for me, a racist country is a country in which the majority of people hold racist views. So if we go back just 60 years or so, I will assert that the majority of white people held racist views. Why do we have slavery? Why do we have Jim Crow laws? Why do we have laws that kept black people from voting? Why do we have laws that kept black people from reading? Because the majority of white people, their consciousness was such that they believed they were superior. Well, guess what? Today, it is my perception that the majority of people are not racist. Are there racist people? Duh. Turn on the TV. Of course. But have you ever heard of the CWBS? Raise your hand if you've ever heard of the CWBS. You probably hadn't heard of it because I made it up. (laughs) But in my book, Shattering Black Male Stereotypes, I coined an acronym called the collective white belief system. So there was a time in this country when the collective white belief system was such that they promoted this idea of superiority, and that's when all the racial laws and stuff took place. Then the civil rights movement happened, and white people started changing their minds. And what happened was, when you get to... I read somewhere there was a number, but let's just use simple math. Let's say that you got a hundred white people. And then when you go from 51% to 49%, it's no longer the majority that are racist. The consciousness shifts. Have you ever heard the concept of the hundredth monkey? You guys ever heard that story, the hundredth monkey? So it's kind of like that. It's all about consciousness. So what happens is... When the majority of people hold a certain view, it impacts the entire consciousness of a country. Therefore, I believe most white people aren't racist and that that shift in consciousness, which we're gonna talk about in the next slide, is another reason for optimism. Because once again, my perception is the trajectory that we're on as a species is moving in the right direction. how many of you have heard of Barbara Marx Hubbard? Barbara Marx Hubbard wrote an amazing book called Conscious Evolution. And in her book she says human beings are still evolving. And she says they're evolving from what she calls from what we know as Homo sapiens to what we she referred to as Homo universalis. And Homo universalis means that Humanity is going through this consciousness evolution. We will evolve through ethnocentric worldviews, ethnocentric worldviews, I mean egocentric worldviews, ethnocentric worldviews, human-centric worldviews, to get to cosmocentric worldviews. It is inevitable. Why do I believe that? Well, the reason I believe that is because of the last thing. It is my belief that there is a divine intelligence that created and is still creating this amazing universe that we live in. And this intelligence knows exactly what it's doing. And it's created a system that is designed to fulfill its intention. And what is its intention? Heaven on earth. Now, most people go, wait a minute. Now, my belief, once again, when I think about divine intelligence, in my little head, the way I see it, if there was such a thing called the divine intelligence, would it not be intelligent enough to create a system that it would not allow its creations to destroy it? That makes sense to me, I'm just saying. That's my perception. The creator, the source of all things, knows exactly what it's doing. And when we learn to get in alignment with the purpose it has given us to support it in creating this heaven on earth, then we're doing God's work. I'm just saying. That's my perception. That's how I see it. This is the primary reason I'm so optimistic about the future, the future of race relations, because divine intelligence knows what it's doing. We can't mess this up. It might look like it. I don't think we can. So always remember, there is only one presence and one power in the universe. God the good omnipotent. And your goal should be to connect to this power and discover your life's purpose. And in doing so, you will be doing your part in working hand in hand with God to make the world a better place. So I begin by asking the question if you are optimistic or pessimistic about the future. Here's our greatest gift as human beings choice. Anybody see the movie The Matrix? I love, love The Matrix? You remember the red pill, blue pill? That whole thing was about choice. God gave us the power to choose. And we get to choose to create our reality based on what we believe. So you get to choose. It's all up to you. Now, I'm going to open it up for anybody have any questions before I move to the final slide. I love questions. Anybody want to chat, talk, bring something up? Yes, ma'am. You haven't had any change in your worldview in the last oh, five six years? Have I? Oh. She asked if I've had any changes in my worldview in the last five, six years. No, my, my worldview hasn't changed in the last 10 years. When I made my connection to source, what I'll call divine intelligence, after overcoming everything that I've overcome in my life, I've gotten to a place where I no longer just believe in God. I know God in a deep, intimate level. And I know that this intelligence is moving through me as me. So that worldview has not changed at all because I honestly believe this intelligence that created everything, knows exactly what it's doing. Yes, ma'am. Okay, this is <clears throat> maybe it's
1: not so much about, it's not really about racism, but it's just about your optimism, okay? So I just wanna ask you because for me, I'm just so, so troubled about mass shootings in this country. I'm, I'm just so troubled about that. So I just wanna know how, yeah.
2: So, so have you ever heard of a woman named Byron? Oh, I'm sorry. She wants to know, so your question again, I forgot she came here. Go ahead. Do we have a microphone? Can we pass a microphone? Let's, I'm sorry.
1: Okay. Um, this is maybe really not really about racism. It's about it's really about your optimism, and so that's my question. Is because for me, I am so so troubled about mass shootings in this country. How and and, and so I'm just curious. Yeah. Perfect.
2: So how many of you have ever heard of a woman named Byron Katie? Anybody know Byron Katie? Byron Katie has this process called the work. And it's basically a series of questions that you ask yourself to make you understand your own thinking. And Byron says something that I think is just pretty amazing. She says, you know, when it comes to reality, (laughs) she says, there's three types of business. There's my business there's your business and there's God's business. So when we get troubled by what we see in the media, what we've done is we've now moved away from our business to their business, the shooters or whatever. And it is your thoughts and beliefs about everything that's going on that's gonna drive how you feel, okay? So all of the stuff that we feel is based on our beliefs and our thoughts But then most of that is driven by something outside of us, which we have no control over. So what she suggests is, number one, you got to stay in your own business, meaning, how do you feel? So you can feel sadness about all the killings. You can feel whatever is appropriate for you. But the truth is, it's just your reality that you're creating based on what you believe and what you're thinking. Now, the way to make it your business is to do something about it. What can you do to possibly remove that from our society? And that's when we move into purpose, figuring out how can God use me to change that. And then I don't have those feelings, because now I'm responsible for doing something to change it. Does that make sense? Anybody else? So once again, everything is happening in here and in here. So you got to be responsible for what you believe, what you think, and how you feel. Because that's going to generate everything else in your external reality. And again, that doesn't mean I turn on the television and I see a black man getting shot by a police officer. It doesn't break my heart. It does, every time. But that's still outside of me. I have no control over that. But I can control how I feel, what I think, and what I can do. And what do I do? I write books. I have conversations like this to help change people's minds. So I'm doing God's work. That's how I look at it. Anyone else? Oh, yes. Do you ever talk to Well, what do you define as a tougher audience? Someone who disagrees with me? Hold on,
0: hold on a second. That, oh, sorry. I, when I was looking at your comments about things people could do to change, and I said, "God, that's perfect for this audience, right?" These are people—people people who would listen, would ch- do that, would want to do that. But I sat here and pictured you talking to a crowd of Proud Boys, and it kind of hit the floor, thud. Mm-hmm. You know, on that—that's what I mean. It's like when I think of Indian racism, that's what I think of. How do you change them, right? But I can't.
2: I can't change them. Once again, it goes back to what Byron Katie says about my business, your business and and God's business. The Proud Boys are a group of people that have their own perceptions and ideas. They would not listen to me. It's not my job to go and try to preach to them to tell them to change their minds. No, I have to attract the people that are open minded enough to hear what I'm saying, to engage in what I'm saying and to make a difference in the world. But again, there will always be those external forces out there that I have complete no control over, so I don't even engage with them. And to speak to your point, I get a lot of pushback from black people for being an optimist. Okay. (laughs) And that's absolutely okay.
0: Mainly because my trajectory and yours are exactly the same. The optimism, because of life experience, better, 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 growth, accomplishments, honors, all that. But it feels like things have turned to me. Mm-hmm. So that's why I'm, like I said, my trajectory feels like it's going the other way.
2: Okay. And if you'll know at the beginning, what I said is all about perception, how you see it and how I see it. It's just about perception. So, oh, let me back up one. So, by the way, if you need an excellent speaker for your next event, guess what? That's me. If you have a smartphone, if you point it at this QR code, it'll download all of my contact information. So you can email me, phone me, or whatever. Oops, did you get it? Sorry. Can
1: I join you? Yes, you may. Um, I want you to add to your uh, vita that you're a hypnotist. (laughs) I'm serious. You are. He walked up to me at the beginning of this and said, I give your wife a book for you to read. I want you to read it and then have me come back and talk about it. And the book is, If Jesus Were a Coach, I'm going to do it. There you go. I'll be glad um, to come back uh, you, you will be welcome to come back and speak. I here. would love to can I can tell you. And, and
2: and closing remarks, I came last week for the first time. Yeah. And I was so moved by you <clears throat> with and the platform that you've created. I know that God brought
1: me here to partner with you. Ain't no excellence. There you go. There you go. There you go. Thank you all. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargoes to watch your step. Michael will be here to talk to you after class, so feel free to come up and speak to him, and uh, we will have him back.
0: You all have a great day.